Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Morning, church. How are you? Man, the kids were cute. That's very, very, very cute. Hey, it's, uh, it's very weird being on this side of the fence. I was going to say, well done, band. You did good. I'm used to being part of that. But um, I pray that you and your families are well this morning. And uh, if we haven't met, my name is Aaron, and I serve as one of the elders here at New Spring. And I'm not Dave. I'm not, uh, I'm not tall and dark and handsome. I'm bald. I'm bald. I've got a beard like Brett, but it's probably not as grey. And... <laughs> Um, Doug isn't here today, but I do get confused for Doug sometimes. We do look very similar, and our wives are both called Claire, so yeah, that's, that's odd, but anyway. So can you believe it's the second week of Advent already, as we've been talking about, and if you've done, your, done all your Christmas prep, got your Christmas stuff going, I, ho- I hope you have. Um, we went to, my wife Claire has done, my wife, not Brett, not Doug's wife, um, She's done all the shopping, it's beautiful, and I don't really do the shops, but we went to Bunnings yesterday, and I was just praying, that, that, I love that joint, but that's my happy place, it wasn't happy yesterday, I'll give you the tip, and I was praying for the second advent, because that was like walking through there, God, you've got to come now, because I can't get out of this joint, it's nuts. <laughs> um, but yeah, this year we're doing advent a bit different to what we did last year, last year we talked about faith, love, hope, peace. And so this year we're going to be focusing on some characters of nativity. And uh, if you didn't catch last week's message, Brett did week one, and his character was Herod, and he's a pretty nasty dude. Um, I'll give you a bit of a recap for Brett's. And it was titled, The King is Dead, Long Live the King. Uh, he took us into Matthew chapter 2, and he asked us that if we were part of the nativity, who would we be? And there was a few comedians around, someone yelled out, pig. And I then, funnily enough, my instant thought was cow. I'm not sure why, but so I don't know what's going on with that question there, Brett, but he's actually said there are only two options. We've got two options. And his title being about kings, those two options related to two kingdoms. One, those who worship Jesus and abide by him, and those who attempt to kill him. They include Herod, but the chief priests, the scribes, Sometimes you and I, a bit confronting. He mentioned that in the text, Matthew is littered with references to the Old Testament. And Matthew marks out Jesus as the true representative of Israel. That he ushers in the true redemption of Israel. But also asks us what our response is to Jesus. Are we like Herod or are we like the three wise men? He talked about how the number seven signifies fullness and perfection. And Matthew shows us that in the genealogy up to Jesus, there are three sets of 14 generations. Or another way to look at it, there were six sets of seven. And then Jesus, being the seventh, represents the fullness and perfection of creation. But there's heaps in there. Go back and have a listen. I can't possibly recap. We also learned lastly that his favourite word is context. So out of the whole message, that stuck out to me the most, Brett. So I'm not sure if that's right or not. But. So my task this morning and Eva this evening, you're gonna, we're both uh, being nervous together, uh, for the week two is to shed a bit of light on the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
And I'm going to read from Luke 1, chapter 5 to 25, and I'm going to use the CSB version. It's going to be on the screens. Grab your Bibles, um, grab your phones. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame, according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. When his division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. How can I know this, Zechariah asked the angel, for I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered him, I am a Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed for so long in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. They, then they realised that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favour in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together to hear your word. And I pray this morning that you open our eyes once again to your beautiful kingdom, to your beautiful grace, to your beautiful power, to your beautiful glory. And Father God, may we walk out of this place different to how we walked in. We just give you everything we have. In your name, amen. And surprisingly enough, I'm not, not actually nervous about speaking, but I've really been thinking about it. I'm really nervous about speaking because... <laughs> speaking a message is real... There's weight right here, and you sometimes get in your head that you're not strong enough to carry that weight. But I'm here, so let's do it. So Luke 1 in verse 6 tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous before God, living without blame according to all the commands of the Lord, every command. These guys were, these were, the, they were top notch, they were pinnacle. They, you couldn't get higher than Elizabeth and Zechariah in the way they lived their life. Then Luke says the very next line, but they have no kids. Elizabeth could not conceive and they are both very old. And there's always a but. And when I read this 
myself personally, I just see an old lady and old man, can't have kids, that's about it. And I really feel like Luke is rubbing this point in. But he's actually highlighting something here as an encouragement to the readers, as an encouragement to us. As we've been learning over the last couple of years, and if you're new to New Spring, we've been trying to um, really just get into the story of the whole narrative of Jesus and this life that he wants us to live. And when we read scripture, we need to remember that this is a story of the Israelites' heritage. This is, they're engrafted. This is, we're engrafted into the story. This is their story. The Israelites know the story like the back of their hand. We know our own families pretty well, I would say, but I'd argue easily, it's not an, even a competition, that they would know better than what we possibly even know our, our families. They talk about it every day. And it's great to see in The Chosen. I know it's only a movie, I know it's only a TV show, but it's really good to get that into perspective and see how they've done it. They talk about their ancestors every single day. Like they, they, it's just ingrained in them. They know every part of scripture. They know it's just it's incredible. And when you watch it, you actually feel like you get drawn into it. You're like, man, I want him. Man, I want Simon to be my brother. He's cool. Yeah. So Luke mentioned in here that Elizabeth is barren and they're both old. He's actually setting up a parallel with their great ancestors of Israel. He's not having a dig. He's, he's setting them up. And the readers would recognise this. Especially their ancestors in Abraham and Sarah. As you read in Genesis chapter 17, Abraham and Sarah were also very old and couldn't have children. Yet God gave them a son, Isaac. And as we know... This is where the whole story of Israel came to be. There's other significant characters like Jacob, like Joseph, Samson, Samuel, that were all born to barren women. So Luke again is implying that God is about to do something that significant for Israel once again. As we move into verse 8, we read that Zechariah was a priest from the priestly order of Abijah, which was the eighth order of 24 orders of priests. There were stacks of them, so they had to divide it. All these orders took turns to serve in the temple. Each order, when it was their turn, spent a week doing temple duties. Some of these duties were more honourable than others, so they cast lots to determine who would do what, and the lot fell to Zechariah to burn incense. Joseph Benson, in his commentary, says, because some parts of the sacred service were more honourable than others, both the priests and the Levites divided the whole among them by lot. The Jews tell us that there were three priests employed about the service of the incense. One who carried away the ashes left on the altar at the preceding service. Another who brought a pan of burning coals from the altar of sacrifice and having placed it on the golden altar departed. A third who went in with the incense, sprinkled it on the burning coals and while the smoke ascended made intercession for the people. This was the part that fell to Zechariah and the most honourable in the whole service. And what gets me is that the Israelites believed in casting lots. Like that was an, ex that was an expression of God's will. They thought, let's... And it's mentioned heaps of times in the Old Testament, a bunch of times in the New Testament. So pretty much they get a stick. If you know what casting lots are, they get a stick or something. Pull the short straw. Yeah, I've got the short straw. That's basically it. So nowadays we don't really use sticks, but like we kind of like gather it as like rock, paper, scissors. Pretty much. Dale, should we buy that car? <laughs> yes! 
I didn't. That was good. Should we buy that house? Rock, paper, scissors. Yeah. And some of the young people aren't here today, so I can say this. Should we Uber eat that two litres of milk? Rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> True story. <laughs> so Zechariah's in this pretty special moment by chance. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And you could put it in today's context. Thank you, Brett. It's like Perth having the AFL Grand Final. It would never happen again, even though it was the best. So Big Gabriel comes and visits Zechariah in this most special moment, this, this once-in-a-lifetime moment, and tells him all these things about his future son, the one who is going to make way for the Messiah, that he will go in the power of Elijah and his response is, nah, man, don't believe you. And I'm thinking, what? Are you serious? If Gabriel came to visit me, let's be honest, I tell you, I don't do social media, but I'll be posting till my fingers bled. I would be letting every single person know. My chest would be so puffed up, it would be more than a turducken on a Christmas day, like a chicken stuffed in a duck, stuffed in a turkey. They are big things. It would be bigger than that. So I'm thinking, Zechariah, you of all people, you're, you're the one, you're Mr. There's basically no one higher than you, what Scripture says. You're righteous in every way. What are you thinking? And it leads me to ask, why did Zechariah respond like that? Because as we read past verse 26, when Gabriel comes and visits Mary, her response is different. Completely different. Zechariah would have been praying for years for a child. And reality is, if you don't have kids, your name finishes, your family finishes, your bloodline finishes. It's the reality of it. Zechariah and Elizabeth, who've been married for many, many years, could not have children, and which in their culture was seen as a sign of God's disfavour, and it was considered shameful among the people. It might not sound like proper to us, but that's how, that's what their life was. Yet, still through this shame and reproach, Elizabeth and Zechariah continued to serve the Lord faithfully. Even at their old age, now just trusting that God is still faithful somehow. Israel is swimming in the shame on a world and there's so much of this that we don't understand in Perth 2,000 odd years later. That culture is different to our culture. It's different to what we experience. But we can still right now in our culture suffer the debilitating weight that shame brings that dehumanisation brings. It's great that Dave mentioned it before, like, you get so caught up in, oh, you can't sin, oh, that's sin, but it's actually this not living, like, 
God wants us, like not living in this, in this way that, that brings life and love and things that distract us and take our attention away from who God is. It's dehumanisation. It's, it's a great word. It's probably the biggest word that in my vocabulary at the moment. When in your life, my life, have you felt moments of shame or do still feel this shame? And I know I have them and sometimes it feels as though that chasm of shame is so deep and so wide that even the very word from God doesn't pull you out of it. And maybe this is true for some of us right now, that God is speaking to us and calling us into this plan, into his plan and his purpose. Yet we can't possibly believe it because of the shame that we feel we carry. Brett read over this for me and helped me. So I wanted to read this little bit verbatim for what he said because it's, it's pretty good. I was thinking about this thing and I came up with it, but... He would know. You guys wouldn't, but he would. Hey, man, can we catch up this week for a coffee? I want to talk to you about something. The world reflects its nature. It cannot reflect the nature of God, as it is not in relationship with him. The world has a dehumanised nature because it is only through relationship with Jesus that we can reflect our true humanity. It is only through relationship with Christ that Christians are alive. Everyone else is dead. So the values of this world reflect its core nature, which is a dead and dehumanised nature. Our nature is out of life and wholeness through and only through relationship with Christ. This is what being in Christ means. It can also be said that because of this, we reflect the nature of Christ. And because we do this, God is glorified. So it's at this moment, through Gabriel, God was setting them up to release them from all of their shame, from their dehumanisation, from the unrelenting burden of being frowned upon from the outside. The advent or arrival of Jesus is bringing about a dramatic change to rectify all this. And through this burden-releasing moment of their son, John, being born, the very son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who, 700-odd years earlier, Isaiah prophesied, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, the way for the Lord, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Even in market talk, when we went through the series of market talked about, as we, it just, it's amazing how all these things just draw together, all these little, little parts and little, little webs and little things. It, it's all just, it just, it just comes together to this, as this beautiful, this beautiful moment. Scripture is amazing. It is, it is amazing. And Zechariah would have gone straight to that scripture in his head. He knew it. He knew it. They know it. He would have instantly just been bang. And maybe that freaked him out. I don't know. So after Zechariah doesn't believe him, 
Gabriel then tells him that he won't be able to speak till his promise is fulfilled. And there would be, there's lots of little rabbit hole sermons you can go, even just from that little part. But. And I reckon they probably don't really get it in, you know, there's no, obviously we don't get bold writing in this, but I don't reckon Gabriel would have said, Oi, now listen. He would have been, <laughs> No! He'd be a scary dude. Do not be afraid. Yeah, but you're 18,000 feet tall. <sighs> Zechariah returns home from that moment after he finishes his service. And he spends time with his wife. And surprise, surprise, they conceive a child. And the scripture tells us that she kept herself in seclusion for five months. A commentator by the name of Geoffrey Wilcox says this, so Elizabeth, by her seclusion, does a twofold work. She draws the connection between what God is doing and what she is doing. He has removed my disgrace. He has taken it from sight to be remembered no more. For five months in the light of this, she hid herself from sight. And when she was seen once more, there would be no denying what the Lord had done. There would be no mistaking her for one still barren. There would be no opportunity for further reproach. That which God had removed would no longer be remembered. Thus her seclusion was a joining with God in his work. He is working to hide my disgrace. And until he has completed his perfect hiding, I will hide the work in progress. I've hid myself because the Lord is hiding me. So what is it about Elizabeth's pregnancy and reversal of her shame that reveals God's glory. It's this. There was no possible way that Elizabeth could get pregnant. None. It had to have been God. And his glory is revealed through an impossible situation. We've all got an impossible situation. All of us. Some of us are good at hiding it. Some of us are good at talking about it. Some of us aren't. We've all got one. We've all got a family. We've all got people we pray for. I know I have. And I know that in those impossible situations, somehow, God will be faithful. Now, I hope I'm not super old like Zechariah was when he answers my prayers. But that's for him and not me. So their prayer had been answered. Verse 25, Elizabeth says, The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace among the people. That which God has removed would no longer be remembered. As I was writing that, I actually felt like that was even just that one line. This, uh, I'm pretty, this is just how it comes in my head. This is pretty simple. But I really feel that that which God has removed would no longer be remembered. 
in your life today, in, in, in something that you're carrying today, God doesn't see it. God doesn't see you. All he sees is a perfect, beautiful creation, full of light, full of love, full of his grace. Every, through this blessing, their son, John, his miraculous conception came and took away their shame and disgrace. John is paving the way of the coming Messiah who has taken away our shame and disgrace. Isaiah 9.6 says it better than anything. I love this. Behold the Lamb of God the one who takes away the sin of the world in Mark. Behold, behold, the Lamb of God, behold. It's not just a word. It is like everyone, look. It's the Lamb of God. He's going to come and take away the sin of the world. Every bit of shame and disgrace, every dehumanisation, every burden, It was true back then, and it's still true now. God delights in his people. Time's up. (laughs) I'm going to come to a close, so you can... That's a nice little segue for you, Andrew. I pray that in this season of Advent, this moment as individuals, as a family, as a church, that our eyes will be opened to his glory through us. That when we hear that voice that is calling us out of our shame, that we recognise that God wants nothing but the best for us. I really pray that we don't respond like Zechariah did at first. But I pray at the end that we respond like Zechariah and Elizabeth and we can say the Lord Lord has done this for his glory. Quite possibly the best Christmas scripture. For us, for unto us a child is born, to a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing, upholding it, with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. His name is Jesus, the name that takes away all shame.